Hello, my name is Daniel Nenny, founder of SemiWiki, the open forum for semiconductor professionals. Welcome to the Semiconductor Insiders podcast series. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please post it on semiwiki.com and we'll get right to it. My guest today is Randy Fish, Director of Product Line Management for the Silicon Lifecycle Management family at Synopsys. Randy has over 30 years of experience in the EDA, IP, and semiconductor industries. Welcome to the podcast, Randy. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm happy to be here. You know, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but let's get a little bit more information. Um, can you tell us what first brought you to semiconductors? Yeah, it's, um, I'd like to say it was a, you know, well-planned, this is what I wanted to do from a, a young age, but <laughs> that's, um, that's not really how it worked. I, I guess I, I went the path of what I assume a lot of engineers did, which is, you know, you did well in science and math and, and school and they um, sent you off to, to college somewhere. And so I ended up at Georgia Tech. And actually, I, um, I started off as an architect, of all things. And um, I, I quite enjoy architecture. And, um, but, you know, a couple quarters in, you're taking your, your various classes. And I became intrigued in the electrical engineering program. So I switched over to become a double E and, um, and finished my you know, bachelor's in double E and a minor in um, computer science and um, stayed on and it was kind of non-specific i was doing computer architecture and dsp stuff and intel sponsored my graduate school so when it came time to graduate and, and find a place after my master's it was um yeah you interviewed with very people various companies because they they flew you around for free and that was kind of fun but i really went to intel because intel paid for my school and i thought why not so i, I wish it was deeper thought than that but that's how I ended up at Intel, and that was kind of the beginning of my um, career at semiconductors. So I was a design engineer at Intel, and um, and that was nothing but a great experience. I mean, it was a huge learning experience for me, and um, and it, and it, it pushed me forward in a number of ways. Um, and from there, you know, EDA and IP and semiconductors, and I've kind of um, gone in between startups and big companies, and um, um, that's kind of been my story. I joined Synopsys. A little over three and a half years ago, um, specifically for SLM or Silicon Lifecycle Management, and um, it's been an area that's uh, been of interest to me for a while, which is what really goes on underneath your design in the chip. So not just the normal operation of what the user sees, but all the underpinnings and things that have to happen to make the chip work. And so that's what I've been um, focused on for a while now. No, that's a great story, Randy. So let's talk a little bit more about SLM and how it works in the memory space. So how do you define the memory space that SLM can address? I mean, one of the, I guess, interesting sides of memory is, is memories are, are everywhere and, they're, and they vary quite a bit, right? And there's, if you look at system performance and system life, um, you know, memories are critical. So the, the definition of a memory is, is um, you know, really a storage element, right? The ability to store um, a state, but if you um, more more realistically, there's you know DRAMs, there's you know things like HBMs, there's you know flash memories or storage, um, there's embedded memories, SRAM or you know MRAMs, other types of embedded memories. So when we look at SLM, we look at um, each of those different types of memories in order to see how we can add value or um, what are some of the aspects of silicon health around those memories um, that can affect system performance. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if people really realize how important memory is, you know, it, just as important as logic. So 
what are some of the unique challenges of the life cycle of memories? Yeah, so memories, um, I guess a, a couple of things. One, I'll, I'll start off with, they actually serve, and they're, they're powerful for, for helping to yield ramp, right? So they can be used as a tool in them to themselves. So if you look at a, a complex SOC today, um, you may have tens of thousands of embedded memories, right? It's a massive number, right? So it's it's not just, you know, dozens or hundreds. There's, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 embedded memories in some of these largest chips. Um, and using those as yield indicators and being able to optimize yields based, based on those memories is very powerful. You know, that's almost an opportunity as opposed to a challenge, but the, the yielding of memories, since they are a very, very dense, highly optimized structure, um, is, is very, um, it's a useful tool for the overall yield of, of you know, various semiconductor processes. Um, one of the challenges, of course, of memories is they, they are so heavily optimized, and so you, you want to be able to have them dense. You want to be able to have, um, to be able to monitor and repair them. Um, you want to be able to look at them throughout their life and that they, they are involved in so many ways in your design, and whether you're doing enterprise designs or automotive designs, um, memories are, are you know, pervasive, um, both as standalone memories as, as well as embedded memories. Um, as far as their any more really unique things, you know, their failure mechanisms are, are very well studied. Um, you know, what, what specific aspects of them are going to be systematic failures or intrinsic or extrinsic failures, depending on how you look at it, um, and how you can test them. And, you know, Synopsys has very, quite a bit of activity in the, in the world of, of, of memory test and repair and has been very successful in that space. But a lot of it has to do with a deep understanding of the actual um, memory construction, the, the architecture of the memories, whether it's you know, planar or FinFET or, or now data all around, um, and then how you can um, efficiently test those structures and repair them during the life cycle. So that's a, a little bit of context there. I, I do wanna, let me hit one more thing there. I hadn't thought about it until now, but the whole area of multi-die um, if, you, if you look in multi-die, it's, it's, you know, HBM stacks are quite common. Um, if you look across any complex uh, multi-die solution today, you're going to find memories. Um, and how they react in those environments is becoming more and more important, right? Being able to predict thermals across a complex, you know, two and a half D infrastructure, um, it's very hard to do. So it's under normal operation that you really need to be reading temperatures and voltages that will affect the memories or the memories may actually affect you know the the adjacent logic um, as well um, so and, and and along with that is is you draw a line which is you know it's not just memories and logic maybe there's you know die to die interconnect that these memories have to the actual logic or or um, other functions and so the health of that interconnect you know whether it's considered associated with the memory or the logic it's now a matter of um, not just memory and logic, there's memory, logic, and interconnect um, in die-to-die -die context that you need to be concerned about. Okay. So let's talk about a little bit more detail. What is the scope of SLM? So I'll give you the kind of the official you know, positioning here that we use, and there's, it's, well, I'll say two dimensions. So one is, what are the components, right? So we have IP that we insert into a design or can insert into a design. Okay. And this silicon IP is, um, you know, beginning with probably the, the um, most heavily used would be PVTs or process voltage and, and thermal monitors. So they can insert into design um, during the design phase. Um, also, we have um, path margin monitors, so we can actually measure 
the, the margin, the actual true margin, setup time margin on actual paths in situ. Um, and so that soft IP that gets stitched into the design using um, you know, the synopsis um, digital implementation tools, um, it gets stitched in with the test infrastructure. Um, so it's deeply integrated. And then we have you know die-to-die -die interconnectors, what we call signal integrity monitors. We have high-speed access monitors. There's a, a whole portfolio of monitor IP, and, and um, um, so that's the first step, which is to, to, is to get that infrastructure placed in. Um, and then you have um, really analytics is is the key portion, and analytics falls into a few components. One is embedded analytics, which is kind of the the emerging area which is you have firmware or software, you know, application layer that runs on the chip itself and performs analysis of this monitor information while the part is under normal operation or mission mode of operation. Um, you also have edge analytics. Um, you know, we've been working quite closely with Advantest and Teradyne where we're able to gather data during the, the ATA or test phase um, of operation where you're gathering data from the monitors and from standard test information like STDF and performing analytics within the actual um, test facility or test cell itself, um, which we consider edge analytics. And then finally, there's cloud analytics, which is you know, typically going to be either manufacturing or in field where you're gathering data from actual operating parts, so silicon that are um, on a board in a box, you know, in a vehicle or, or in a data center. Um, and you gather that data and you perform analytics across a very broad population to find various trends that may be of interest. Okay. So that's one way of looking at the various components of it. So we see the design phase. There's an in-ramp phase where you're ramping up a new process and you're, you're trying to get to an acceptable yield level. Um, In-test or high-volume manufacturing phase. And then finally, the, the more um, the emerging area, which is um, in-field. You're gathering data for um, optimizations within the chip itself or at the cloud level um, from gathering data from the, from the monitors. So the scope of SLM is, is broad and there's many different use cases, I guess. All right. So can you talk a little bit more about test? You mentioned test. Uh, how, how do test and SLM interact in this, in this space? Um, so when we first started the, you know, this effort, and it started before I got to Synopsys, but it was probably a little over five years ago, is um, the test organization um, was work, you know, we work closely with customers and, and TestMax, which is our test portfolio, is a very successful product line. Um, you know, we were getting feedback from customers that, you know, it's not just good enough to test and ship a part at time zero and assume it's going to work throughout its life in an optimal fashion. Um, and, and that was really the, the seed for what became, you know, the SLM you know, family of products, which is you need to be able to continually test at some level throughout the life of the part. Automotive's um, industry has been doing that for a while. You know, you have key on and key off every time you start your car, it's doing a, a, some sort of self-test. You may have um, various intermediate testing that's going on as well. Um, so test has been um, involved in the in-field portion for a while. And so what happened is um, we started building out what we called SLM or Silicon Lifecycle Management, which is inserting these monitors and also blending them with the test infrastructure. So the ability to use the, the test infrastructure, which is very mature in a chip, and be able to access this monitor information, and also to be able to use these, um, you know, ASO qualified infrastructures that can be um, used for gathering the monitor information and performing using 
the infrastructure to perform analytics as well. So there is where test ends and where SLM begins is not a hard line at all. In fact, we consider um, what traditionally is considered test is things like um, Excel BIST or you know built-in self-test for memory and for logic. Um, we consider that really part of an SLM end of the solution, which is it's happening in field, you're testing, you're gathering data, um, failure rates and repair, in-field repair, that can be indicative of aging. And we can uh, fuse that data with monitor information to really understand a lot more about the life cycle of the part in the silicon health. So it's um, tests and SLM are, are um, um, very close cousins at this point, and we work closely together. Randy, can you talk about some of the verticals you've been involved in, uh, for example, data center uh, or automotive? If I look at the, the verticals, you know, who cares about SLM? Um, it, it, again, there's all these different use cases for how people want to use it. There's the high performance or data center or, or the um, hyperscalers. And what they really care about is, um, um, you know, they're trying to optimize workloads heavily, right? They have a, a very vertically integrated stack where they're, you know, today many people are doing their own silicon um, and they're integrating silicon from third parties. And being able to optimize those workloads and understand not just the life, but being able to run um, at an envelope of power and being able to get the most out of those parts where it's not necessarily 15 years, it may be only three years or, or 30 month kind of life cycles, but they want to optimize those workloads. Um, they want to do you know, optimal performance given us a fixed power envelope. And so that's one of their, their biggest concerns. Um, and for the hyperscalers or, or data centers, there's also just the, the topic of RAS. So reliability, availability, and serviceability, and how you address those areas, which is a um, um, has been a um, a theme across you know all data centers for for many many years. If you look at automotive, it's been an explosion, right? I mean, we I think if you and I go back a, a few years into our own histories, you know, automotive was not even a a generation behind as far as lithography knows. Quite often, it was you know three generations or something. There were there were trailing edge lithography nodes um, for good reason, right? Which is you had good history on those processes. Also the workloads you were running were manageable. Right? Um, and so things were, everything was high confidence and well-proven. What we're seeing now in automotive, um, primarily driven by ADAS and, and electrification overall of vehicles um, and the whole software defined vehicle push has been the compute workload is, is um, it's just accelerated exponentially, the expectations. And so we now have, um, I know you, you're closer to, the, to some of the foundries than I am, but um, you know, the TSMC has, has had early announcements around a three nanometer automotive node, right? Or, or these kind of things. And so you're having customers very aggressively move to some advanced nodes. And so the amount of compute that they're putting into um, an SOC or multi-die is staggering. And they're coming across some some new challenges for the automotive industry. Also, they want to be able to affect their no, their their own designs now. It used to be the OEMs would more or less be driven by the semiconductor companies that were making automotive parts. And I think we're seeing a change there, where OEMs are either driving specifications or, in some cases, actually implementing their own. So when they they implement their own, um, you know that's very exciting for companies like Synopsys because um, we get to, to provide tools and IP and and consulting. Um, but the whole area of, of 
what, how can you heavily optimize a design for specific um, automotive requirements is um, it's just a burgeoning area of all sorts of opportunities. And so for SLM, there's heavy concern around um, basically reliability, right? Automotive companies want to be able to run for not just, you know, 4,000 hours. There's some that may want to run for 40,000 hours, right? Where they have transportation as a service, self-driving vehicles as a, as a service. And um, suddenly the life cycles go to many years, many, many hours that are far beyond the, the uh, mission profiles that historically were used. And so they can't design to a worst case scenario anymore. They need, the, the designs need to adapt to real time information. You know, what is the temperature doing during its operation, right? How is that affecting aging? All this information can be pulled together and you can calculate rem remaining useful life. You can look for failures or predict failures, um, ideally before you have failures. You know, failures in field are very expensive. Um, for automotive, as, as well as, you know, data center or almost any business. Um, but in automotive, it's, it's a particular concern. So automotive is a, is a really interesting space now, just with the growth in compute and the, and the aggressive move towards new architectures um, and new process nodes. Yeah, I agree completely. You know, I think one of the unique things about automotive, it's, it's so personal to people, right? Because we have a little bit more of a relationship with our cars than maybe our dishwashers or refrigerators, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I don't want to go too far off road here, but um, it staggers me sometimes how, how personal it is for people. You know, people, their vehicle, they identify with their vehicle in many cases, right? And, and I don't see that going away. Two edges to this, right? One is the personalization. The other one is, you know, the idea of transportation as a service. And, and um, as the years have gone, gone on, and maybe this is aging me, I'm leaning more towards, I'd be okay with, just having a vehicle pull up in front of my house and drive me whenever I need it. You know, I'm, I'm losing my desire to own a vehicle. Um, so I'm, I'm torn whether I want one that is very, per, that is personalized for me versus one that just takes me around. So. Right. Yeah, I actually do both. <laughs> I have a car, but sometimes I just take uh, Uber or Lyft, especially to the airport or something like that. But uh, yeah, you know, we put so many semiconductors in cars now and, with the personal relationship, it's kind of nice because semiconductors are front page news in all regards, you know, in all different markets. And automotive is, is probably one of the more interesting ones. Yeah. And I, I think there's huge, um, you know, potential there to add value. That's what's so exciting. It's in, in it's, um, there's so much newness in what they're trying to do um, that it's, um, I think, it's always exciting to be in a market where it hasn't been tuned for 20 years. It's, there's, there's been enough change in automotive to where they have an opportunity to suddenly tune a whole bunch of new things. Yeah. Well, great conversation, Randy. Uh, nice talking to you again. And I'm sure we'll see each other, you know, in, in the coming months at, at a conference or, or maybe at the airport. <laughs> I look forward to it, Dan. And I'm um, always good to speak with you and um, um, we'll speak again. Thanks. That concludes our podcast. Thank you all for listening and have a great day.